Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and the following interview is being republished with permission from the excellent podcast Psychologists Off the Clock. That's Psychologists Off the Clock at offtheclockpsych.com. I hope you enjoy the interview. ever wonder what therapists talk about over coffee? Well, we're three clinical psychologists, Dr. Diana Hill, Dr. Ray Littlewood, and Dr. Debbie Sorensen, and we'd like to welcome you to Psychologists Off the Clock. In this podcast, you'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to thrive in our own lives. Our webpage is www.offtheclockpsych.com, and there you can find resources we mentioned in this episode, as well as other podcasts we've posted. You can also find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Diana Hill for Psychologist Off the Clock. If you have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, then this episode is for you. About a third of Americans struggle with insomnia at some point in their lifetime, and there are treatments that can be effective for insomnia, specifically cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Today, I have the benefit of talking to a leading expert in insomnia treatment, Dr. Alicia Bross. She recently co-authored a book with Dr. Colleen Ernstrom called End the Insomnia Struggle, a step-by-step guide to help you get to sleep and stay asleep, a new Harbinger publication. In today's episode, Dr. Bross will talk about some behavioral strategies that you can use to help you get to sleep and stay asleep, talk about some of the ways in which our thoughts get in the way of our sleeping, and also talk about some newer interventions like willingness and mindfulness in the treatment of insomnia. Dr. Bross is a licensed clinical psychologist who specializes in CBT for a wide range of presenting problems. She received her doctorate at the University of Colorado and did a year-long internship at the University of Washington Medical Center, and then trained for two years at Duke University Medical Center, where she researched treatments for depression and provided psychological services to patients with light-threatening medical illnesses. Upon her return to Boulder in 2002, she established her private practice and began her work with the Robert D. Sutherland Center for the Treatment of Bipolar Disorder, where she is currently associate director. Dr. Ross, in addition to providing individual family and group therapy, is regularly engaged in training mental health professionals and behavioral treatments for bipolar disorder and CBT therapy for insomnia. Hi, Dr. Ross. Hi, Alicia. Hi, Diana. It's so great good. to be here. Thanks. Yeah, it's great to see you and be here with you. And I gave you the um, sort of the professional introduction, but it feels more relevant to give you the personal introduction, because in addition to being a superstar on sleep and insomnia, you um, have really shaped my my professional training in my life, both um, and also personally. Alicia was my one of my very first instructors at University of Colorado. She was my instructor for psychopathology and her course was quite rigorous. <laughs> my memory of it was that it sort of... Um, was about comparable to multivariate statistics in terms of its <laughs> challenge for me, and it really laid the foundation um, for me in, in my own professional training as a psychologist. And rigor is definitely a word that I would use to describe Dr. Bross, and I, I feel like in reading her book, 
um, that shows up in this workbook for clinicians and practitioners. It's really a rigorous um, approach to insomnia. She doesn't dumb it down for the general population, but rather keeps the um, intellectual research-based, uh, pause that and rewind, delete that. <laughs> Rigor really defines this book as well in terms of Alicia doesn't, um, doesn't oversimplify the material for the general public. I was impressed when uh, Russ Harris, who is an ACT guru, even said about your book that he learned new, new things that he wasn't expecting. Yeah, so pretty impressive. But I, after meeting Alicia through psychopathology, she went on to be my clinical supervisor at the Sutherland Center for Bipolar Disorder. And Alicia was one of the um, really found out foundational people in terms of my understanding of risk management and working with some really difficult and severe um, cases. And I remember really um, poignantly in, I don't remember what year it was, but she was there with me when my first, my first experience of having a client attempt suicide and how that was so challenging uh, as a young trainee and to have her um, knowledge about crisis management, but just also her personal support was so helpful. And that, I think, really um, encapsulates Alicia as a person. It's knowledgeable and warm, and it really shows up in this book as well. And now Alicia is a good friend, and we um, spend some time together when I come to visit Colorado, so it's nice to see you today. Yeah. Well, it's great to be with you. Yeah. So I, I'd love to launch in to talk about um, just maybe laying the foundation of insomnia and why you, maybe first, just why you decided to write this uh, workbook on, on insomnia with, with your colleague, Colleen Nordstrom. Yeah, well... Colleen and I had been working specifically with insomnia patients um, for a number of years, and one of the most rewarding things about this work is that we have a treatment that works so well for so many. And so cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is so powerful and so helpful, even for people who have been struggling with sleep for many, many years. Um, but it's not as accessible to the general public as it really needs to be mm -hmm. based on its efficacy and how widespread the, the problem of insomnia is. And there are a number of different barriers to treatment. You know, one is that a lot of people just don't know about it. Mm -hmm. And another is that a lot of people don't have easy access to it. Either there aren't enough clinicians in the area or they can't afford to pay the rates that it, you know, would that it costs to mm -hmm. go to see somebody individually. So one of the things I'm really passionate about, as you know, Diana, mm -hmm. is disseminating or spreading evidence-based treatment and a workbook speaking directly to the individual who's struggling with sleep seemed like a really good way to try to get this really effective treatment out there. Mm -hmm. um, I'll add one more thing. There are already some workbooks that are meant to help individuals with sleep problems go through a traditional CBTI or mm -hmm. CBT for insomnia program. Um, but Colleen and I, through our clinical work, really started to identify some of the challenges inherent in the traditional CBTI treatment. Mm -hmm. And so what we really wanted to do in this book is use some principles and strategies from acceptance and commitment therapy that we have found to really 
improve the outcomes of the CBTI. So we wrote this book because we felt it was different than what's already out there from the CBTI tradition. Right. Because the, the yeah. treatments the treatments that work, even though they work, you have to be in a position to be able to do them and continue to do them. And doing some of these treatments that you describe in CBTI are sounds very challenging. And something like ACT um, would be sort of like also working with phobias or PTSD. ACT can be so helpful in creating the willingness to be able to move towards and continue with the treatment, even when it's difficult. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And as I'm sure we'll talk about, there's also another element of um, how willingness ends up coming in yeah. into play here. Yeah. Well, let's talk. Yeah. A, let's talk. Just me, maybe even starting with insomnia and um, and how it the, the role sort of it plays in mental health because it's certainly one where I'll have clients that are coming in with a, a, a sort of a range of different problems, whether it's anxiety or whether it's um, substance use or whether it's bipolar disorder and insomnia tends to be part of a lot of different mental health concerns. Um, mm. can you, can you tell me a little bit about that in terms of, um, why sleep is so important to mental health and the role it plays? It's not only sleep disturbance is absolutely, like you said, a symptom of most of the psychiatric illnesses that, um, yeah, that we might treat. And so if somebody's depressed, their sleep is likely to be disturbed. If they're manic, their sleep is going to be disturbed. If they're anxious, it may be. Um, People with chronic pain and other physical ailments also often have disturbed sleep. And so it is ubiquitous Mm -hmm. and, you know, cutting across so many other conditions. We also know that when people have insomnia and don't have other mental health issues or diagnoses, that they are at increased risk Mm -hmm. for developing Mm-hmm. Um, depression, for example, mm-hmm. if the insomnia is not treated. So I couldn't explain exactly why. To me, it just kind of makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, why does nutrition matter? Like right. our body really needs restorative sleep. And mm-hmm. that means enough sleep and it means good quality sleep. Mm-hmm. And without that, the our, our normal functioning starts to break down. I think it can, that breakdown can show up in different ways. But I also, I don't mean to oversimplify it. It's when we're not sleeping well, it can certainly contribute to mental illness. But again, sleep is also, or disturbed sleep is also a byproduct of other right. things. And, right. you know, that also makes sense if somebody's really anxious and their nervous system is really aroused, then it's going to be harder to sleep. Right, right. And so... Yeah. It seems like it's really transactional. They feed like that. They feed each other. That the exactly. the decreased sleep could feed your anxiety, and then you get anxious about not sleeping, and then it makes you not sleep, and it becomes a, a mm-hmm. cycle. Which is actually something I'd, I'd like to for you to talk about because I think your book does a really good job of describing how we get ourselves um, into this this cycle of not sleeping, and that some of the things that mm-hmm. we do to try and get ourselves out are really counterproductive. Um, can, talk, can you talk a little bit about that, the cycle of insomnia and how it develops? Yeah, sure. You know, basically the way I think about it is, you know, almost everybody has difficulty sleeping at some point, but most of us, our sleep then resolves. It goes back to being good quality and quantity sleep. And so the issue isn't really what gets sleep off track in the first place. Mm-hmm. It's why do some people go on to have continuous problems mm-hmm. with sleep? with sleep. Um, And so the way I like to think about it is that your brain really does know how to sleep and it knows how to self-correct. And if 
So if something happens, let's say you're caring for somebody who's sick or you yourself get sick and you're up through the night or you have a bunch of stress on your plate and it's keeping you up worried at night, it's natural for your sleep to be disturbed for a night or two or three. But most times your body, your brain are going to then kick in and say, sorry, I need to Mm -hmm. sleep. And it's going to self-correct. So our brains know how to sleep. We can self-correct. We just have to get out of our own way. And so what I mean by that is both the behaviors that you were alluding to as well as the way we think about things. So Mm. if I'm not sleeping very well and I don't understand why or I start to get worried about it and what it's going to mean and what the repercussions are going to be, then I'm going to start to have some thoughts like, I wonder if I'll sleep tonight. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen? Oh, my gosh, I need to be on the top of my game tomorrow. Oh, I can't stand another sleepless night. I hope I don't lie in bed awake for hours. Mm -hmm. And just in starting to think those things, I'm creating some physiological arousal Mm -hmm. that's actually going to make it more difficult to sleep. And then, of course, we also reach for kind of short-term fixes. And they might help in the short term, but they're likely to be things that actually interfere with our body's ability to do that Mm self-correction, interfere with our physiology of sleep. Mm -hmm. So some classic examples, you don't have enough sleep, you're tired, and maybe you reach for more caffeine or sugar. Or maybe you take a nap during the day that ends up ultimately interfering with your um, kind of sleep rhythm. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you're so tired that you say, eh, I'm not going to exercise. I'm not going to exercise as hard today. Mm -hmm. Or you haven't been sleeping well for a few nights, and so you spend more and more time in bed hoping Mm -hmm. to get more sleep. Mm -hmm. So we call those compensatory behaviors. And when we engage in these compensatory behaviors trying to make up for or counteract poor sleep, it ends up getting us caught in this spiral of insomnia because it actually interferes with our body's natural capacity to self-correct. Right, right. So we're trying to, to problem solve it because also when, when we're so tired and you haven't gotten a good night's sleep, you want to just just sleep tonight. So doing some of those things feel really um, in the short term, like, oh, it's going to help me get to, get to bed tonight. But in the long term, it ends up keeping you in that cycle. I see a lot um, in my practice, the use of even just one to two glasses of wine at night, like, oh, it just helps me wind down. But then boom, I'm awake, you know, at midnight because the, you know, the alcohol mm-hmm. um, wears off and, and, they're, and there they are awake. So there's, there's a lot of ways which we try and put ourselves to bed, which aren't super um, productive. I, so, so how, so if that's part of the cycle is, is us trying to fix it, but then you're writing a book on how to fix it. (laughs) What, what do, I mean, what do we do? What what are some of the strategies that would be more helpful than, than what we're doing? Right. So let me address your more nuanced point first, which, and we talk, Colleen and I, a lot about finding the sweet spot Mm -hmm. that there are strategies that do work. And we want people to use helpful strategies. And so I will come back to say what those are. Um, And one of the things we noticed when we started to do this work is that, yeah, some people, like you alluded to earlier, weren't really willing to stick to the program. But other people were being super, super rigid. Mm -hmm. They were doing everything to try to sleep. And so their lives had started to evolve around trying to sleep. And so there's really this sweet spot of being willing and – yeah, willing to do things that we know help sleep, but mm-hmm. not doing it in a way where you're trying to control sleep. Right. Because if you try to control sleep, sleep is going to control you. It's mm-hmm. one of the few things that the harder you try, the more elusive it is. Mm-hmm. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like if you think about it, if you go to bed tonight after we, you know, sign off from this podcast and you say, okay, Diana, try really hard. I'm really going to try to sleep tonight. Like that kind of effort is really going to get in the way of sleep. Right. So we do have strategies that work. We want people to use them. We want them to understand them. We want them to stick with them. And we want them at the same time to be willing to not sleep mm-hmm. or not sleep well mm-hmm. on any particular night. Mm-hmm. So we talk about that as being willing and able to surrender to whatever this night brings. Mm-hmm knowing that I am working on changing my relationship to sleep, improving my insomnia, and I may or may not get improved sleep tonight. Right. right. And that's what I feel like when I've worked with clients around insomnia has the biggest paradoxical effect because soon as they let go of that, like I'm, I'm letting, well, first I'm letting go of the belief that I need sleep to function. Because that's also something that I think people hold pretty tightly to, which is I'm not going to be able to function. I'm not going to be able to do my big work. Because usually a lot of times we're not sleeping because we have a big work thing the next day or we have something we feel like we need to be, you know, totally 100% for. And so therefore we can't sleep and we get worried about it. But when we actually go back and retroactively look at, well, how well did you function? You know, did you make it through? Were you able to do the work? And people more often than not are like, yeah. I felt a little tired, but actually my adrenaline kicked in when I was doing the, the performance or the work thing that I was worried about and I was fine. And so once we let go of that idea that, I, that I'm not going to be able to function without sleep, that helps. And then this other idea of it's okay to not sleep. I'm just going to let go of that tonight. Like, but that's not my agenda for, for this evening. Yeah. It's really freeing. So you're really, yeah. And you're really alluding to one of the strategies in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is cognitive restructuring. Mm-hmm. You're helping people identify their thoughts that are related to sleep that might be feeding that insomnia spiral and you're starting to challenge them. You know, what's Mm -hmm. the evidence that you won't be able to function or you won't do well? And I want to be a little careful here because I don't know about you, but I certainly work with people who have struggled with insomnia for many, many, many years. And Mm -hmm. I don't mean to suggest that it's not costly and not painful. Right. And I certainly want to you know, express to people that I understand that they are much less comfortable Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. next day um, because they haven't slept well and they do feel better when they do sleep well. But you're right. They often do exaggerate the likely consequences of not sleeping well this particular night. You're alluding to one other thing I need to mention too, which is as a society, you'll see all these messages about how important sleep is and people who don't get enough sleep or at increased risk for this disease and that Mm -hmm. disease and this earlier death. And again, we're back to that idea of a sweet spot. We Mm -hmm. want people to be motivated to prioritize sleep, to take care of themselves in that way. But those kinds of scare tactics really feed into that catastrophic thinking that feeds into the insomnia struggle. So we really also try to help people kind of talk people back from the ledge on that one. Right. Absolutely. Um, And that there's lots of ways to care for ourselves around our nighttime ritual and to prepare our bodies and ways for, you know, for a rest or just a downtime that are really important. It makes me think of, you know, when I'm, when I'm putting my children to bed, there's a whole series of things Mm -hmm. that I do to prepare them. And they're very sweet. You know, there's songs and there's baths and there's stories and there's hugs and there's wonderful things said to each other and there's dim light. And all of that is just sort of this preparing for this time. And I think more often than not, we're just like climbing into bed after reading our, you know, news on our phones and like expecting ourselves to fall asleep. And that, that it's not about that we have to work harder at sleep, but maybe we could 
sort of be kinder to ourselves in the process of winding down our day to facilitate this time of rest. And um, yeah, so the scare tactics, I mean, they never work like for anything. I think for how we eat, how we exercise, that is, you know, in general, not going to be effective, but yeah. Right. And, and you're saying prepare to sleep. And I think that's, you know, a great way to think about it. And we also think about you saying we want to do things to promote sleep. We're not going to force it. We're not going to control it, but let's, you know, try to set ourselves up for it. Let's promote it. Let's make it more likely. Let's make ourselves more available, create opportunities to sleep. But yeah, you don't say to your kids like, okay, now I want you to fall asleep right now. You right. might say, I want you to stay in your room and stay in your bed. Right. This is quiet time. Yeah. This is quiet right. time. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I feel yeah, that there, exactly. can you talk a little bit about, um, so you've talked about some of the cognitive strategies. Um, yeah. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about this, the behavioral strategies because they're pretty, um, paradoxical and what you would not expect to do if you are struggling mm. with insomnia. Um, so yeah, so you talk about yeah. two different approaches. Yeah. So I, yeah. So I love talking about these because this is really where the power is in this treatment. Um, it's behavioral strategies that have been around the longest and have the most research support and you can just see them work so quickly Mm -hmm. when people are willing to do them. And so first I want to say that CBT is not sleep hygiene and sleep hygiene is the stuff everybody does already know. And they've seen it in the pop magazines. Um, so really when we're talking about behavioral therapy for insomnia, we're usually talking about choosing between one of two programs or combining them. And one is called stimulus control therapy Mm-hmm. And the other is called sleep restriction therapy. And in stimulus control therapy, the basic idea here is that when you're sleeping well, then a great majority of the time that you're in bed, you're asleep. And so if you're doing something like reading for 20 minutes before you fall asleep in bed or having sex with your partner or having conversation with your partner in bed, you're still going to, at a very um, base level, be associating the bed with sleep. Because a great majority of the time that you're in bed, you're asleep. Mm -hmm. But when you start to have unreliable sleep, you're going to start to spend more and more time in bed when you're doing other things. Maybe you're reading. Maybe you're looking at your phone. Maybe you're just lying there awake thinking. Maybe you're ruminating. Maybe you're worrying. Maybe you're frustrated. Maybe you're stressed. And so now the bed is associated with all sorts of things. So when you start to prepare for bed and get in bed, your brain's not saying, oh, of course this is time to sleep because Mm -hmm. I'm in bed. It's Mm -hmm. instead saying, gosh, maybe I'm going to sleep. Maybe I'm going to worry. Maybe I'm going to ruminate. Maybe I'm going to read. Maybe I'm going to play on my iPhone. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do. So the idea with stimulus control is we want to retrain your brain to pair bed with sleep. Mm -hmm. And so the basic idea is that you only sleep when you're in bed and you don't sleep other places. So you use your bed only for sleep. And you sleep only in your bed Mm -hmm. so that you can create that pairing. Um, There are a lot of little nuances, and we go through a lot of those in the book, and it's that kind of nuance that we try to hold people's hands through, both in the book and if we're seeing somebody live, because it's those nuances that make the difference. But to give you an idea of what this might look like, we might um, be really clear if you're not sleeping, where in your house you're going to go, what you're going to do, what preparations to make. Do you need to change the lighting so you have access to a low lighting mm-hmm. environment. If you're going to do some reading, if you're not sleeping when you want to be sleeping, 
we'll do some work to prepare the right material for that, something that's not going to mm-hmm. be a page turner mm-hmm. or get you too aroused. Um, or is there a different activity that will be better, maybe listening to this podcast mm-hmm. or maybe um, listening to a book on tape or maybe doing some coloring uh, that's popular these days, mm-hmm. adult coloring books maybe doing some knitting, but we want to pick something that's quiet, relaxing, or boring because we still want to treat this period as my time to sleep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you get in bed and let's say you fall asleep pretty quickly and then you wake up in the middle of the night. You first give your body an opportunity to fall back to sleep because waking up is a really normal thing. Um, but if it's clear to you, you're not going to fall asleep or if you give yourself an opportunity and you're not sleeping within 20 minutes, you're going to get up and you're going to go to that spot that you've already chosen and you're going to do that activity you've already chosen. And then you're going to return to bed when you're sleepy or you might do it in 20 minutes just to see mm-hmm. if you can fall asleep. Mm-hmm. If you fall asleep, great. If you don't, you're going to get up and you're going to repeat that throughout the night until your consistent wake up time. Mm-hmm. And that's stimulus control therapy. And, and I'm, what I really liked about your workbook is that you do go through so many questions that come up because what it sounds so simple, you just get out of bed and you go, you know, go to another room and you go, but there's a lot of questions and, and working, um, recently been working with a client around insomnia who just, it's just so funny that this happens when your, your book comes out. And, and so I had this resource right there where we actually literally opened the book in our session. I'm like, well, what does Alicia say about that? And I, <laughs> I found, I found some, you know, some questions and answers. So it's really helpful to have the concept, but then have all the follow-up questions of like, well, what if this, and what if this, and, and all of those are laid out and answered. And more often than not, you also take the flexible approach. So you give an answer, but you also insert the flexibility and workability and effectiveness um, which is so nice as a clinician because it's not so rigid that it's okay. This person doesn't want to do this. So we're out the door and you say, well, this is what's most, you know, this is what we recommend, but even integrating, you know, questions about, um, sleep aids. And obviously if someone has insomnia, more often than not, they're going to be using something to treat their insomnia and medication wise. And how does that play into this psychological treatment? So you answer all those questions right. in the book and it's really helpful. Um, can you talk yeah. about the, the second, the second, um, yeah. behavioral component sleep restriction? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so sleep restriction therapy, I, I have to just warn you that most people, when I first introduce it, say, hell no. Mm-hmm. And by the end of our discussion or maybe a week later, they come back and say, yeah, okay. Um, because it sounds really painful Mm -hmm. and it can be, but it is so powerful and so effective that Mm -hmm. this is really oftentimes my go-to strategy. So with sleep restriction therapy, the idea is, as I mentioned before, when people are having unreliable sleep, they tend to spend more and more time in bed, or even if they spend their typical, let's just say eight hours, if they're only getting five hours of sleep at night, then they're spending a lot of time in bed where they're not sleeping. Mm-hmm. And so we, um, what we like to say is that as you spend more time in bed, what happens is your sleep spreads out to cover the wider territory or yeah. real estate you've set aside for it. And so, again, it feeds into the insomnia spiral where you're spending more time in bed, but you're either getting less sleep or poorer quality sleep. Mm-hmm. So the idea with sleep restriction, which we should really call time in bed restriction, <laughs> is we're going to use sleep log data to get a baseline, figure out how much time are you sleeping on average now. And let's just work with the idea that somebody's sleeping six hours a night on average. Then we're going to prescribe that that person spend only six night, I'm sorry, six hours in bed each night. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so maybe they were getting in bed at 10 and were getting out of bed at 7, but only getting six hours between mm-hmm. 10 and 7. Now we're going to say, let's shrink that so that you're only in bed for six hours. And then we're going to work with them to figure out which six hours would be the best six hours to be in bed. And we've got okay. a bunch of different things to consider. And then if they're going to be staying up super late and they know they're going to be exhausted, we're really going to work on what are you going to do to stay awake? But that's not going to be so activating that you can't sleep when it's time to get in bed. Or if they're going to have to get up, you know, with an alarm before they normally would or when it's really dark, we're going to, again, really problem solve. How are you going to do that? Mm -hmm. And really, so, okay, so we're going to restrict their time in bed to the amount of time that they're currently sleeping. Now, that means that most likely they're going to get a little bit less sleep at first because they're not going to sleep 100% of the time they're in bed. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, this tends to work pretty quickly if somebody's not too, too anxious, if we can really work with that anxiety piece about why this is going to work, then they tend to start getting really consolidated restorative sleep, even Mm -hmm. though it's not enough of it. Mm -hmm. And after they have been sleeping 90% of the time that they're in bed for about a week, Mm -hmm. meaning that they're what we call sleep efficiency averages 90% over the course of a seven nights, then we're going to increase their time in bed, but we're going to do it slowly in only 15 minute increments. Mm. So the person who is in bed for six hours and they come in and for the past seven nights, they've averaged a 90% sleep efficiency, then we're going to increase to six hours and 15 minutes. And we're again again, going to talk about where are we going to put that 15 minutes, the front end or the back end of the night. Mm -hmm. Uh, And somebody's going to ask if they can go a little faster. Can't they increase by (laughs) half an hour? And I'm going to say you can, but I don't recommend it. Yes. Because there have been a few times when I really thought somebody was a great candidate for that and we went to half an hour and things just really fell apart. Mm -hmm. So my motto is the slower you go, the faster you get there. Okay. And what I really find with this treatment um, is that people, you know, going back to what you said earlier, Diana, about how we think we're not going to be able to perform well the next day if we don't sleep well. They also Mm -hmm. have a lot of predictions about how awful it's going to be to be in bed for only six hours. And so often people come back in shocked to say either that they feel better because their sleep, even though there's not enough of it, it's at least more consolidated, mm-hmm. or shocked at how good it feels to get so many hours of their life back. Yes. That even though they exactly. feel crappy for the amount of rest, they have so much more of their life back and they're thriving in that right. way. Well, it's such a different perspective on that time. Like you could be going, you know, waking up at 2 a.m. and tossing and turning and you're spending your time awake tossing and turning and trying to get yourself back to sleep. Or you could be waking up and doing something productive that you enjoy. I mean, maybe not too, too much enjoyment, but just something, you know, quiet and reading a book or letting go of that, again, that struggle with it. So it does have that quality of, um, really like, like your title is, is letting go of the struggle. And that makes a meaningful difference. I think for people, just that different perspective. I also think there's a bit of it, which is very helpful, which is the idea of having a plan. You know, so often mm-hmm. it's, it's like for someone that maybe is struggling with, say they're struggling with food or struggling with something, exercise, having someone come in and say, Hey, I know something that works and here is a plan and a strategy that you could do. Because more often than not, I think when we're struggling on our own with something like sleep, 
we're just kind of throwing all sorts of things at it and not really knowing right. what's working and what's helpful and what's not. And it can be really discouraging and exhausting over time. So having a plan Absolutely. that you're going to follow feels really relieving, I think, for folks. And that's something that I liked about the structure of of the workbook is that you have sort of these specific steps around you just initially self-monitoring and getting an understanding of what's happening with your sleep and then being able to do some of these flow charts of which type of treatment you're going to choose and why you would choose it and then actually implementing the treatment. So it's really a nice step-by-step guide to, mm-hmm. to prove what to, what to do next. And that in itself just, I think, relieves a lot of the stress and anxiety around, um, around sleep. So that's very helpful too. Yeah, it's interesting because in my initial assessment, I always ask people, what have you already tried and what are you currently doing Mm -hmm. to try to facilitate sleep or decrease insomnia? And most times you can imagine the list is really, really long. And you're right. They have no idea what's doing what or it feels really knee jerk. Like first I try this and then I try this. And and so I think there is some comfort in having a plan and knowing they're just going to stick to it for Mm -hmm. a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. The other thing is with the stimulus control, the one where you leave the bed and then get back in bed and leave and get back in bed. That's where I find that sometimes just having a plan in and of itself makes it so that somebody never even needs to use it. Yeah. Just knowing that they yeah. are not going to lie in bed, lay yeah. in bed awake for hours. So nice. Um, <laughs> so decreases their stress yeah. that, you know, they're like, okay, cured. See yeah. ya. Yeah. <laughs> and I never see them again. So I, I feel like that we should, that it feels um, important to talk about willingness because you just described two pretty stringent, difficult, when people yeah. first initially look at them, they don't want to do it ideas around behavioral treatments. And that's the part that I think your book um, also introduces from ACT that is, like you said, is new and different from other workbooks. Can you talk a little bit about willingness and the role it plays here in in this treatment? Sure. We really talk about willingness, as I already mentioned, to not sleep. Mm -hmm. And we really want to be careful there. Willingness to not sleep does not mean resigning yourself to ongoing chronic problems with insomnia. We're talking about being willing on any one particular evening or night to not sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, So we want to talk about decreasing the struggle, being willing to not sleep. We also talk about being willing to sleep. Mm -hmm. And that might sound a little bit strange. Um, when people are coming in and they really have straightforward insomnia, they want nothing more than to sleep. But we find that sometimes it's actually a lot more complicated where maybe somebody isn't willing to sleep in the sense that they're not prioritizing it enough, like you were alluding to earlier, that they aren't willing to give up some other demands on their time. And so they're go, 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 go right up until bedtime. And then they're mm-hmm. expecting themselves to sleep and they might need to prioritize it more. But also sometimes it's even more complicated than that. Maybe somebody has a history of trauma and um, it's really scary to surrender to the night and to relax and let go of control. So mm-hmm. sometimes it's a little bit more complicated and we need to work on willingness to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other piece of willingness, as you were just suggesting with behavioral programs, is being willing to do the treatment and stick to it mm-hmm. and being willing to experience short-term discomfort in the hope that it's going to deliver long-term benefit. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting because when I said that a lot of times people start off with a heck no kind of response to doing the sleep restriction, it sometimes really astounds me. I mean, I'll be working with somebody who has had chronic insomnia for something like 10 or 15 years, Mm -hmm. 
who cannot say that they have had a really good stretch for quite some time, and they are sleeping an average of, let's just say, six hours a night. Mm-hmm. But when I prescribe that to them, mm-hmm. they're like, no, 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 I'm not willing to do that. Yeah. Um, and so we really do need to work on that willingness piece. And there are a couple of things that I think are super important there. One is education. And so I really emphasize education. How does sleep work? How does insomnia work? How is it maintained over time, which we've already talked about some here. Um, and if people can understand what's happening and how healthy sleep works mm-hmm. and why these treatments should get them back on track, mm-hmm. and if we can also tell them how effective the treatments are, that can greatly increase willingness. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also do want to work with the willingness by you know, trying to elicit what are the specific things you're concerned about, what do you expect to be most uncomfortable. We want to show compassion for that, and we want to help them problem solve. Mm-hmm. And then you know, using that short-term, long-term kind of paradigm. So if I have somebody who I know is you know, kind of financially savvy, we'll often talk about the difference between day trading versus investing for retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you've been approaching your sleep problem more in a day trader kind of mode of what happened last night, what happened today, okay, then what am I going to do to manage this? And then I want to help them think of it more as investing for retirement, that we're going to take a look and see how things are going, but we're not going to make knee-jerk reactions or change the treatment or change behaviors mm-hmm. based on one night's sleep. We want to take a look at the whole week, for example. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so, really so a lot of talk yeah, about willingness and willingness to do the treatment. Yeah. So as we're um, closing up, I'm wondering if you could give some um, strategies also around sleep for the for the folks that just have some sleepless nights, but maybe not struggling particularly with um, insomnia. So I know that we've all had those nights when we, we can't sleep or maybe have a string of them. Are there some, some ideas or strategies that would be helpful for, for them? I think the most important thing is this piece around willingness to not sleep and not getting caught up in a struggle. Mm -hmm. It's not going to necessarily help you sleep tonight, although it might, Mm -hmm. you know, if you are, trying to sleep, not sleeping, and you start to be, ah, I'm frustrated, I want to sleep, mm-hmm. or what's this mean, or where's this going to go from here, then obviously it's going to be harder to sleep tonight. Mm-hmm. And if you can say, you know, it is what it is, and yeah. I'd rather be sleeping, but I'll just have some downtime and rest, um, then you don't get caught up in that struggle, and it might help you sleep tonight. And more importantly, it's going to prevent you from getting caught in that insomnia spiral, so it becomes more yeah. of of an ongoing problem. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, there are so many individual differences here. You know, my answer always first is it depends. Yeah. And you know that about me anyway. Yeah. Um, my first answer is it depends. Um, if you're in bed and it sleep isn't coming and it's fairly relaxing and you're resting and this is a one-off night or a couple of nights, I would say, say stay in bed. Mm-hmm. If, however, you can tell that you're like super alert, you're bored or you're getting anxious or you're getting frustrated, mm-hmm. I would suggest leaving the room like you would if you were doing stimulus control. Mm-hmm. And then I think the most important piece is that you not start to train your brain to be productive during that time or to mm-hmm. need food during that time or yeah. set up a new pattern. Sure. So you kind of want to do a stimulus control kind of thing, but you're not set up for it. So yeah. you want to go somewhere and you want it to be kind of low light and you want to do something quiet mm-hmm. and you know, maybe avoiding screens, but yeah. going for, you know, a printed book or magazine mm-hmm. or, um, or a 
screen that doesn't have the blue ray of light or yeah. and then doing something quiet and checking in with yourself. Am I tired now? Do I think I can go to sleep? Or am I just going to be up for the night? So really mm-hmm. trying to maintain that relaxed attitude, but not getting super productive at 2 or 3 a.m. and training your brain to, oh, look, I can get more done. Or, oh, look, it's time to have a meal yeah. or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And just out of curiosity, uh, I'm curious about how what principles you use in your own sleep. If you have any habits or rituals <laughs> or things that you do to promote your you know, sleep opportunities. Do you, do you have anything that you like to do to promote sleep? Well, you know, I, I have to say that one of the big, um, side effects of writing a book yeah, is compromised sleep. I, that's what I was wondering. <laughs> How do you sleep while you're writing the sleep book? Cause you're thinking about sleep all the time. You're thinking about your book. You must've been, <laughs> yeah, yeah, struggling there. Um, Right. You know, I definitely fall more in the camp of our other huge sleep crisis in this country, which is not prioritizing sleep enough. And so when I go to sleep, I tend to fall asleep quite quickly. And that's Mm. usually a lot of times people think they have insomnia if it takes 15 minutes to fall asleep. And it's Mm. actually quite the opposite. If you fall asleep within a minute or two, you have a sleep debt. Yeah. And you're not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's actually my biggest struggle yeah. is um, creating enough time and space. But I do have times, and usually it's one night at a time. Sometimes it's a string of nights where I have a much harder time settling down when I'm in bed. And, you know, really it's that willingness and letting go piece that mm-hmm. I make the most use of. of yeah. Really, well, and actually one other um, that we didn't get a t- chance to talk about, um, this thing called designated worry time yes. where oh, yes. your mind is doing stuff and it's busy putting mm-hmm. it off to another time. So yeah. I really like to remind myself, whatever it is I'm thinking about, it'll be there tomorrow. Yeah. And then yeah. maybe bringing my attention to my breath or to sounds around me. Yes. And then my mind goes again. And then I mm-hmm. say, it'll be there tomorrow and, mm-hmm. and bring it back to, yeah. to in more quiet. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's, that's definitely a strategy with the worry time or that I use is keeping a note. I've always kept like a little notebook by my bed with a pen. I'm supposed to be journaling, but I'm terrible at journaling, but I do use it for the middle of the night when I'm thinking about something that feels so important that I need to solve this problem right now to just have some place to jot it down. So it's out of my head and I know I can take care of it at a time that's appropriate to take care of. Thank you so much, um, Alicia. I really appreciate you being willing to do this podcast and talk about all the resources that you have. And I want to point listeners to if they want to find you, some places to find you. So um, obviously you can look for Dr. Bross's book, End the Insomnia Struggle, a step-by-step guide to help you get to sleep and stay asleep. And it's by Dr. Colleen Ernstrom and Dr. Alicia Bross. And you can look for that on Amazon. It's available now. And you can download, once you purchase the book, you can download um, worksheets um, and uh, sleep logs and all sorts of material from that, um, from purchasing the book. You can also contact um, Dr. Bross through her private practice, which is um, cognitive behavioral therapy is it, what would be the um, the uh, the web address for that, Alicia? It's bouldercbt.com. There you go. I was like cognitive behavioral therapy boulder. No, bouldercbt.com. <laughs> and you probably have offerings for your trainings. Would they be connected through that website as well? If you're doing online trainings, yes, I always 
update that when I'm doing live or online training. Okay. Yep. So Dr. Bross offers um, trainings for professionals, um, both online and in the community as well as individual couples um, therapy and also is the associate director of the Sutherland Center for Bipolar Disorder, in addition to all these other things that she's doing with sleep. So you can contact her there. And if you want to uh, look at our website, which is offtheclockpsych.com, offtheclockpsych.com, I'll have some links to those websites as well and um, any of the resources that we discussed in this podcast. So have a great day, and it was wonderful to speak with you. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you, Diana. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can also find us at www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclockpsych.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens.